people are going to be writing about us for the rest of our lives probably, and after we're dead. So I intend to either confuse the issue so much they never knew what was going on, or to try and keep shoving out bits and bits. So as whoever is bothered to be looking at it in the future, the people that really know will sort out, you know, they'll know what was going on a bit. There's a lot of books about the Beatles and a lot of theories. And I try not to read them, and whenever I do, the first thing is like, oh, that's wrong. Everywhere you go, trying to find out any little bit of dirt that they can write about you. Beatles is Beatles, that Beatles, Beatles, Beatles. It doesn't matter, you know, what, what people say. You can't live all your life by what they want. Another Kind of Mind, a different kind of Beatles podcast by Another Kind of Mind. I think I'm hitting me best now. Okay. Start again, eh? Don't talk when he's playing, uh, guys. Hello, and welcome to Another Kind of Mind, a different kind of Beatles podcast. This is the second in our series of three episodes on Peter Jackson's documentary epic, Get Back. Because you're sweet and lovely girl, I love you. I'm Phoebe. I'm Daphne. And today, as promised, we welcome Iris. Iris! Hi, it's great to chat with you all again. Greetings, Daphne. I think this is our first time uh, talking is. on the air. Yeah. Nice. Exciting. And ACOM first. Today's episode is all about George and Paul and George and Paul and Paul and George. <laughs> we look at their dynamic as bandmates, friends, and surrogate brothers. The John and Paul issue might also make a brief appearance as well. We'll also take a look at George as a producer for some insight into the creative conflicts between Paul and George. Before we finish, we'll also discuss the Beatles' performance on the roof and talk about a few scenes that we'd previously known only through audio and how seeing those with the accompanying film changes our perception of those moments. All right, that's what episode two is about, okay? Yes. Take it or leave it. Piano is very difficult, aren't it? Let's go ahead and jump into George. That sounds creepy. Okay. But awesome. <laughs> Let's go jump ahead and to George. jump on to George. <laughs> oh my God. The bulk of the conflict in Get Back is between George and Paul. Iris, how do we tackle their issues without playing favorites? Is that even possible? In a perfect world where we didn't have decades of discussion of the Beatles that's really heated in a lot of cases, mm -hmm. Um, I, I think a more interesting conversation is why is somebody responding to someone else in this way, right? Or like what factors led to this? What is this person thinking that leads them to do this? And then this person's responding to this and kind of looking at the whys uh, without necessarily getting into who's being meaner, whose actions were justified. I mean, we've all seen a million back and forth takes on what's meaner, like too many people or how do you sleep, right? <laughs> but then there are cases where it seems like, yeah, you do need to talk about that because this perfect world doesn't quite exist. Like maybe someday that kind of discussion could kind of come into it a bit more. I think um, 
like Phoebe has said, like you can definitely do both. I mean, you can look at uh, why somebody's responding in a certain way and also go, that person's responding this way and I can see why they are, but also they're being an asshole, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. You yeah. can do that <laughs> um, for sure. Um, but yeah, if you're dealing with decades of people saying your favorite beetle is bossy and a bully or a brat. AKA the respective Paul John George trifecta of descriptors. <laughs> I'm presuming. <laughs> yes. The three Bs. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. We know who Ringing. bossy, bully, and brat are. <laughs> You're probably going to have to uh, kind of talk more about your favorite's point of view in that case. Uh, and really make the case like Gilmore did and talking about the breakup. For example, in the Rolling Stone cover story, Why the Beatles Broke Up from 2000, Mikhail Gilmore wrote that John and Paul treated McCartney, quote, shamefully during 1969 and unforgivably in the early months of 1970. Sometimes you need to kind of break through a narrative with a statement that would shock people, right? Like it's not just, oh, okay, well, they really put Paul in his place and they were fighting back um, (laughs) as Phoebe has said (laughs) against this like they had to do these things because Paul was forcing them to do that like sometimes you have to go no they were actually being really terrible to him um, in order to even have like a potentially more neutral discussion of this person acted in this way for this reason I do wonder at what points can you just have kind of those more neutral discussions where you don't have people just sort of being um, up in arms to go, okay, well, maybe George did this, but only because Paul has been Mm. such a terror for the past 10 years. So to even raise the question of whether it matters that somebody did this. Um, Mm. So yeah, I'm just really kind of curious to see if we could do a judgment-free analysis <laughs> yeah is it like i know i'm just laughing at the idea <laughs> yeah it's difficult because even though we love all of the beatles like daphne and i were saying before everybody kind of has a favorite and so it's there's always the temptation of like just defending your favorite for sure And I can also see it really depending on what you're trying to do in your discussion. If you're just trying to answer a what happened question and you're not addressing an audience that necessarily cares about assigning blame, I think you can present a more or less neutral reading. But whether it can be truly neutral is debatable because who you relate to more or know more about can influence what you see or don't see. So you kind of have to check yourself for that. And then there's the question of whether a more neutral reading or a reading as neutral as you can make it is more persuasive in some contexts. Does it maybe invite more people who are prepared to be angry or defensive on their favorite's behalf to set those reactions aside because the goal isn't assign this person loads of blame and suggest that they're an asshole, right? Yeah. Uh, and then there's the other aspect when you are trying to have a who behaved worse conversation or a was this justified conversation. And it seems like those are needed to try to break through the decades of criticism from rock journalists and biographers who definitely weren't sitting around neutrally going, <laughs> I wonder if X did this in response to Y. So what you're saying, Iris, is that it's important to confront the question that if there's an existing and entrenched narrative that is biased, is neutrality the most powerful rebuttal to that? Is it the best remedy? Or is it okay sometimes to risk the pendulum swinging too far, so to speak? It's like the whole fallacy of showing both sides. 
exactly like, there are some circumstances where it is actually wildly inappropriate to to represent both sides equally yes some sides are not rational and shouldn't be entertained yeah and would anyone even listen if you were just trying to refute something it's just sort of a question of who your audience is what your goal is and you know would they listen to this and this type of reframing and I honestly don't know. I think it, a lot of it just depends on the, who's the asshole stakes in some cases, right? Like if you right. lose those, then potentially people are more willing to have an open discussion. But I, I don't know. But like you were saying, sometimes your audience is much less invested yeah. than big parts of the yeah, Beatles fandom that can be very, uh, yeah, exactly. Very emotional about it. Yeah. And, and also- Sometimes your audience is less informed and they're less uh, sort of poisoned by other people's narratives and, and whatnot. Like some people don't know what Lennon remembers even is, you know, <laughs> so it might not always be something you have to push against. Like Get Back can be watched by, I mean, Get Back will be watched by 13 and 14 year olds who haven't read a Beatles book who haven't consumed a lot of boomer narratives and that's going to be some people's introduction to the Beatles and they're going to have much different impressions of the Beatles than people who grew up with let it be yeah and it's it's interesting just to see and that's totally different like you can sit down and watch it and enjoy it without I think too many preconceived ideas um, but then when you look at the criticism you see a lot of well we thought we were going to see McCartney being totally overbearing and bossing everyone around and that isn't what we saw and that's kind of surprising oh a pendulum <laughs> <laughs> pendulum has swung too far yeah yeah it's like <laughs> okay so the 40 years of the pendulum being on john's side wasn't a problem yeah yeah right now the threat that it might be too far to paul's side is a huge problem that we need to prevent well in terms of like is it possible for the pendulum to swing too far like how is it even swinging too far in paul's direction like what like he's not a piece of shit is that <laughs> too far <laughs> things like the Caitlin Moran oh, article all that's saying is like Paul's terrific like that's it there's no harm in that no one is coming out with things pieces saying like you know what after watching the get back I think Paul's amazing and all these other Beatles are fucking garbage we should flush them down the toilet like fuck yeah. George Harrison <laughs> useless fuck <Tom> Lennon. <laughs> right yeah there's no harm being done to anybody all people are saying is like wow maybe it wasn't all paul's fault well but then you can say that that doesn't do any damage to the other three but if the other three's reputations are predicated on the fact oh yeah that it was all paul's fault and now it's not all paul's fault then they have to share some blame yeah yeah. well it kind of goes back to the yoko thing isn't it possible to say this isn't yoko's fault without saying she's a complete victim who had no impact whatsoever on the beatles yeah we go from one wildly unnuanced take to the to the opposite the pendulum <laughs> right and it's like well maybe we should just stop the well, pendulum swinging and like well, <laughs> well that's the argument that you were making phoebe is that uh, you can understand why peter jackson decided it was worth it to go maybe overboard in the other direction absolutely 
What do you guys believe is the primary problem from George's point of view? I think like Daphne's kind of suggested earlier, he wants to be in a different band, basically. Like he wants his <laughs> band to be something else, like yeah. uh, sort of like the traveling Wilburys, which will come. So he kind of wants it to be a group experience. And what he says to Paul, it should be where if you write a song, I feel as though I wrote it and vice versa. Um, and mm -hmm. he goes, I mean, the thought of being involved in it as much as if, and then he says, that's the good thing about the last album. It's the only album so far I tried to get involved with. Um, and then Paul has that quiet, yeah. <laughs> and he's like, you know, he's like, oh. <laughs> uh, okay, let's talk about that quote for a, a while. Because I don't really think that there's consensus. There might not even be consensus amongst three of us as to what exactly <laughs> that means. <laughs> so... Yeah. Iris, how do you interpret that line of George's? I don't think it's a credit thing. Like, I, I don't think he's just like, yes, let's have Lennon McCartney Harrison on uh, the album. To me, it seems like he kind of wants in on Lennon McCartney and he wants them in on him. Like he wants this sort of, he wants them to pay as much attention to their songs as he does to theirs. But the thing is he wants that input on their songs. And we see that, um, with Paul and Get Back, where he's just full of ideas for what Paul should be doing on Get Back. Like there's even that line at mm. the end of the thing. He's like, "You should be using your Rick, <laughs> right? You know, right. Like this kind of thing." He's like, "All these things that that you should be doing," and I think it's interesting that he addresses this to Paul. But why does he say like the last album? He wasn't co-writing with on the White Album. In fact, according to the conventional wisdom, at least uh, the White Album was the most you know, divisive album that they had done. Mm -hmm. And then they acted mostly as solo artists with a backing yeah. band on the White Album. So I don't understand what the connection between those two is. I'm not sure either. I I have to like, just trying to figure it out. I What makes the most sense, even though it kind of goes against what I thought the White Album sessions were like, but what makes the most sense for George to say that is that he tried to give more input on John and Paul's songs on the White Album. Mm. That's what it sounded like he was saying. Because he said that I got more involved, not that was the first album that you guys, you got, guys let got me involved. involved. In yeah. 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 So I wonder if that's yeah. true. I don't know n enough about the specific recording sessions to know if he was right. Contributing. And maybe he's only talking about like, you know, a few instances where that happened. I doubt it. I doubt he was like popping up like a groundhog for every song. Like, <laughs> I got an idea. Like, maybe it was just a couple, but it was yeah. more than he had in the past. Maybe he just talked more. The surface read of that statement to me is we should all care about these songs so much and yep. we should care about the Beatles that each song, each Beatles song is like a child that we all helped raise and we all love it. Yes. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> and I think that idea does not work for Paul well I don't, I don't know that that's true because I think <laughs> Paul does care about every Beatles song and wants every song to be good well, and does contribute to it I think so too yeah I, I think that Phoebe you're right that he like he does want every song to be as good as possible 
but I think that what he doesn't want to do is cede that kind of final say to anyone else, um, except maybe possibly John, but not even then. I mean, there's that moment in, um, I think it's part three, uh, where John's talking about the syncopation and he's just like, I don't know about the syncopation because Paul had one of that, but he's like, we'll leave that to Paul. And I think that's what Paul wants. <laughs> he doesn't Final say on his own and, songs. Yeah, yeah. He doesn't yeah. want like John and George being like, you know what, Paul, you know, syncopation's got to go. You know, yeah, exactly. we, we took a vote. <laughs> Get back so, is now going to sure. be a cha-cha. Yeah, <laughs> no, I, d- I definitely agree with that. Yeah. But that's not what George is talking about in the moment. That's why that's that's the moment that they're doing all things must pass. So they're working on George's song, not on Paul's. From that vantage point, it sounds like George is saying, I want you to be involved in my song. And Paul's like, okay, well, that's why I think Paul's getting mixed signals from George because everything Paul says, he shoots down, but then he's like, I want you to be more involved. And so- Paul's like I thought I was ruining everything and also like you hate me being in charge and you don't want to take orders from me so I'm definitely not gonna open my mouth on your song this is your song you tell me what you want me to play on it because I don't want to get into another situation where I played something that you're going to end up not liking and they have a conversation again not included in get back it's during the orange sweater fight Paul says the only solution to this is that everybody writes their own song and they write all the parts and we just play them. And George goes, that would be best. And then of course, Paul <laughs> goes, okay, but that's putting a lot of work on everybody. Cause now you have to write my baseline, George, kind of like this idea of a neutral reading of everybody's behavior. Paul's saying like the only way to do this in a completely neutral way where nobody's stepping on each other's toes and everybody has final say on the you know final product is one person is in charge if you write the song you tell us what to play and we play it otherwise it's going to be a situation where we're all contributing and then we have to hash things out that's just how we're going to have to do it if that's what paul means there then i think maybe what he's saying is look this is how we've done things so far. I'm sorry it hasn't been ideal for you and I'll try to do better, but it's never going to be perfect. I am always going to maybe misstep, but I can't feel like every time I make a little mistake that it's going to ruin the day. Like, can you just accept that things aren't going to be perfect and we might butt heads now and then, but we'll figure it out like we have in the past. And ultimately it'll probably be good for the art for there to be some give and take and a little conflict. Yeah, like what John said, and what we have uh, of the lunchroom tape conversation, right? He's like, I want to be able to take the ideas that you give me that I like, and just get rid of the rest, right? Yeah. And I think that that's mm-hmm. um, something that Paul be in favor of as well. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think it hurts his feelings to realize that they felt they couldn't do that. I sure. I think he he didn't realize how emotionally steamroller he the others felt that he was i don't even know it's that he's an emotional steamroller i think it's more about how paul reacts each of them have their own high maintenance ness you know what i mean yes and Mm -hmm. paul's high maintenance ness (laughs) involves that sort of like he's rejection sensitive so Mm -hmm. you know you have to i don't even think he's 
I think it's under certain circumstances though, because I honestly think in some ways, like a lot of shit bounces off of him. Oh yeah. But I think if you hit him in the, in a weird spot, he'll go, ah, you know? Yeah. And it's, it's <laughs> just sort of like, reaction. Yes, exactly. And it sort <laughs> of shuts everything down. I think a lot of people watching Get Back were struck by how strong and powerful he seemed, especially like in the that first episode when he just sort of came in like a force of nature. Mm. And the trope has always been that he was an egomaniac, right? That this year, especially 1969, he was out of control. His ego was yes. out of control. He was such an egomaniac. Yes. Um, but we see that he does have quite a lot of confidence and, and swagger. I don't, I don't really know that I'd say it was ego so much, but um, he definitely is the most assertive of all of them. But that's not to say that he doesn't have vulnerabilities because he definitely does. And we see those in the movie too. My takeaway, which I had already suspected, but really came to life in Get Back, is that Paul's, uh, to, use, to use a cliche, his kryptonite, is being ostracized from the group on a social or interpersonal level. Mm-hmm. Mm. And obviously, to a certain extent, everybody feels this way. Like nobody likes to be left out. Sure. Um, and Ringo has that story that he's told many times from the White Album, where he went to each of the Beatles and individually he said, You three are really close and I'm on the outside. And then, like, Paul, George, and John all said, I thought it was you three. So everybody feels on occasion like they're the one out of the loop it's very common in friend groups and actually if you think about it it's kind of astounding that these four unrelated people have spent so much time together over the years and got as long as well as they did i agree yeah i mean four people who are not related and who have been shoved into a car in a room in a closet and whatever it's a lot to navigate like just a lot of interpersonal stuff to navigate especially without a mediator Mm -hmm. you know like there's no mom who comes in and like makes everybody behave and be nice to each other the framing is always egos because that sounds more i don't know either it sounds more masculine or sounds more intellectual or something or or like it's more professional egos but like Mm -hmm. i was just talking about feelings all friend groups are vulnerable to hurt feelings and clicks developing yep ringo is sensitive to this too like when jimmy nickel briefly replaced him on tour he said i was worried that they didn't love me anymore and then they came back with roses he's kind of open about it (laughs) yeah but I think it's different in Paul's case because the guys never deliberately ostracized Ringo. Yeah. And like yeah. when he when he came back, they were like, of course we love you. Paul would never tell a story like that. Yeah, I was really worried. Like, can you even imagine that? No. You, you can't even fathom it, right? The closest he's come is the, I felt like I was under a lot of peer pressure to take acid right you can't really take their side when he says that really you're going to come down on the side of the beatles peer pressuring me into take drugs i didn't want to take mm-hmm. yeah. which is fair and accurate <laughs> exactly it's 100 <100% laughs> fair and accurate 
so my point being that like john and george have both used peer pressure and other click behavior against paul in the past you know in hamburg stew and the exes and all that shit and but lsd is the best example the most obvious and the best example because john actually admitted that they were being mean and we know it's an effective tactic because the guys go full throttle with it over the course of the next year with all the alan klein stuff and phil specter and moving paul's release date and all that shenanigans mm-hmm. right yeah so what i felt like i noticed and get back is that paul didn't really care about you know being boss or telling everybody what to do but because i feel like he was pleased when john became more engaged at apple and you know when john was being silly and mugging for the camera and stuff like that i think paul was happy to be i I don't think paul was like hey camera look at me (laughs) i think he was like thank you you're focusing on john for a little bit because it it took some pressure off of him absolutely we know he had too much on his plate so um i don't think he cares about being boss um but he seemed to shut down a little bit when john and george had discussed something without him Like, you know, they got clearance from Billy Preston's record company or whatever it was to have him in the band. You know, I think Paul would be glad that that was out of the way and somebody had taken care of it. But and and it's possible I'm projecting or whatever. I don't know why he's reacting the way he is. But to me, it seems like he doesn't like being left out of the loop. Uh huh. Yeah. Because that is a vulnerable place for him to be. Because he knows oh, sure. they can ice him out if they feel like it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In that instance, nobody did anything wrong. To a certain extent, it's nobody's fault that Paul can be sensitive and feel left out because you can't control other people's feelings. Right. You're yeah. right. And you don't know, you can't control how another person is going to perceive a slight or whatever or get sensitive about stuff. Um, and to John's credit, we do see him being very sensitive to Paul and, and Paul's feelings throughout get back. That was so nice to see, because that's always something you'd hear about, right? That John was so sensitive and such a nice, loving guy. And you'd hear examples about how he shared his chocolate bar with Paul or something (laughs) like that, (laughs) but you didn't really see the extent to which he was he was sensitive i'm just so grateful that we got to see that in action absolutely me too well and also you hear a lot of stories about paul looking out for john in a lot of different ways so it's very nice to see john looking out for paul yeah like hyper attuned to him i felt Mm -hmm. like really watching him very closely to see what his emotions are yeah like there's there's one scene in episode three where john is in the booth i think he's with yoko and george harrison and glenn johns and they're all talking but john is watching paul across the room through the glass john looks like he's not even listening to anything that's going on in the control booth because he's busy watching paul so that tracks it does <laughs> yes. it does track and even uh, apparently john said something about it at the time like in 1970 when he watched let it be he commented on how closely he was watching paul maybe he'd never seen himself do it because you can't see yourself maybe right That's right so it's yeah. like yep oh my god can you imagine john watching get back 
He has no idea. Can we talk for a second about Paul watching Get Back? Oh, I can't. Can't Yeah. He's used to feeling John's eyes on him, but this is the really the first time he gets to watch John's eyes on him. Yeah. What? (laughs) (laughs) So that's my point about um, Paul being sensitive. But I also just want to make one other point, which is that it's always important to remember that John and Paul are not opposites. Yes. Um, I feel like I make this point a lot, but it's, it is important because it's very hard to break out of that thinking. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people have noted that Paul can be sensitive to criticism, which fine. But I think that because Paul can be sensitive to criticism, people assume that that means that super confident alpha leader, John took criticism like a champ. And even though there is evidence that John was more amenable to feedback in terms of, for example, the production of his songs, John was also super sensitive to criticism. Yeah, John publicly complained about his critics all the time, especially in 1969 and the early 70s. And he often would write angry letters to critics, (laughs) Mm -hmm. many of which are published and and can be looked up. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the idea that Paul was touchy, but John wasn't, it's not correct. Oh, that's silly. Yeah. Yeah. And in the studio, John needed a lot of handholding and coaxing as well. Mm-hmm. We have him in his own words stating in the 442 meeting um, from September 8th of that year of 1969, telling Paul, and this is a quote, you'd already had five or six songs. So I'd think, fuck it. I can't keep up with that. So I didn't bother, you know, and I thought, I don't really care whether I was on it or not. I convinced myself it didn't matter. And so for a period, if you didn't invite me to be on an album personally, if you three didn't say, write more songs because we like your work, I wasn't going to fight. There was no point in turning them out. I didn't have the energy to turn them out and get them on an album as well. So while I'm not denying that Paul was a you know sensitive artiste who could be extra and could <laughs> sure need some special handling so could all of these guys mm-hmm. yeah and to John's credit I guess or not I don't know I guess it's kind of neutral but like just because John was more open to others creative suggestions doesn't mean that he was receptive to insults or criticism about his work he cared a lot what people thought you know he read all the clippings he had a service that sent him his own mentions until the day he died mm-hmm. yep yeah john john is definitely the sort of person who makes other people walk on eggshells around him partly because he is just legitimately sensitive but also because he's probably learned that if he you know if you make people afraid of upsetting you then they won't people try not to upset you <laughs> exactly <laughs> and that's nice Exactly. So not saying that Paul was perfect and that he wasn't sensitive, not arguing that, but just saying, you know, once again, we have a double standard in terms of just the people in this band. Yeah. And that's, it's it's striking me too, that with John being more open to creative input potentially um, than in a case where Paul is trying to make a song better, then how is he supposed to know when he's crossing that line 
because there's that whole conversation that they have in the lunchroom where um, John says, well, I'd have to get George interested, <laughs> right, to fight for my own vision of the song. That seems like he's taking it into a personal realm because he knows uh -huh. that that's going to upset Paul and it's going to get his attention because John will resort to doing provocative behaviors if he's not getting what he wants. Mm -hmm. So you think he's, yeah, that he's bringing in this idea of, we talk about you behind your back, George and yes. I, because we don't, yeah, I, yes. that is, yeah. Yep. I sort of have a new thought about that lunchroom tape. Part of me now wonders if a big chunk of that meeting with George that didn't go well was John and George, like having a big come to Jesus moment with Paul and kind of telling him all of the ways that he had uh, been overbearing to them in the studio. I don't think that, so. Because because that happens in September. That's why it's all pent up. That's why they're having it at the lunchroom. Like he's clear in the air with Paul. Clearly they have not discussed that. I, I don't know. I feel like it, it sounds like he's maybe like saying it again. Maybe, but, I, but, but no, because the whole point of that meet, why that meeting didn't go well is because John didn't say anything. Yoko did a bunch of talking. Well, but, well, maybe then she was the one saying those things. Just the way that John phrases things like uh, where he's saying, and I'm, I'm not blaming you for not realizing that you've been behaving that way. And the way that Paul is sort of going, hmm, yeah, sure. You're saying like they've had that conversation before. Yeah, yeah. I think that that's possible. I just don't think it was at that particular meeting. Yeah, that yeah. I th I think it was before I, I think it was in the White Album period because George has that quote. I mean, he's speaking in retrospect, but if we were to take that quote at face value, he says, We'd gone through the White Album, which was misery. That was when all the women were coming in. That album went on a long time, but we just made it through. Then we got together for what was to become Let It Be. The very first day. As soon as we got back together playing, Paul went into this, you do this, you do that, don't do this, don't do that. And I thought, Christ, I thought he'd have woken up by now. So that to me indicates mm -hmm. thought it was going to be better because they did clear the air a little bit on the wine album. Mm. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, that quotes from 1976 and it might be, you know, who knows, maybe his timeline's off, but it does seem mm -hmm. like they hash things out they came to like a truce or whatever and then they had a break right. and then they came back and he's like this shit again yeah yeah <laughs> yeah not to say that um that paul couldn't be overbearing i like the way that um ian leslie put it right that he just has so much charisma that it's not that he's bossing people around necessarily <laughs> yeah. but just that he has such a kind of determination about yes. him that this is what's overpowering Don't let me down. if it's okay if we kind of briefly kind of touch on the like lennon mccartney harrison what would that have looked like and what george may have been proposing there's that exchange where um george says like i need to run through it this way and then paul just says well your way of doing it puts me off the way that i want to do it and so then you mm -hmm. kind of get into the chemistry issue with John and Paul, like, you know, we keep hearing, well, Paul would put up with such and such only from John. Like I had um, someone I would let read my work and he's, he's mm -hmm. the person I felt comfortable sharing kind of really rough work with. 
and he could say to me in exactly this way, what are you doing? (laughs) (laughs) And that would be fine. And I would have other people in uh, my writing community who I really get along with and I respect their opinion. Um, You know, and I don't have trouble sharing things a little further down the line, but just in terms of personal chemistry, just in terms of what we each felt comfortable with in front of one another, what we, what we could say to one another, um, even with like somebody else, I consider one of my best friends who was part of that community. I wouldn't share it with her that way. Yeah. You know, it's just like, it just wasn't like yeah. we get along all these other ways, you know, really strong relationship, but not that same kind of chemistry that I had with this other friend. Going back to John and Paul deciding that they weren't going to cut George in, I feel like even if it's not explicitly stated, people have a judgment on that too. Like they decided to keep this exclusively for themselves. And did you, you know, they, you know, so weird. Yeah. Like, oh, like George had something in his back pocket at like, I don't know, 18 or it, it isn't a question of whether or not. George was on their level or not I mean they were just starting out you know you could see like okay maybe yeah you can make the case they were just starting out uh why not um cut and George and they did have a talk about it but I I feel like that is like it just becomes a question of chemistry right like for whatever reason they were like we know we've got a good thing going it's the question of like is George good enough doesn't have to come into it it's just a question of do we feel comfortable creating together do we feel good like riffing off one another and if so mm-hmm. then that's that's what we've got and are we going to have a too many cooks in the kitchen situation if we invite someone else in and if the answer is yes then they don't like they don't have to feel bad I, th- I think sometimes they do feel bad Oops. and I think yeah. sometimes people want them to feel bad and they're angry on George's behalf that they didn't do this and I can kind of see nobody wants to feel left out right I can see that of course too. yeah I I have no understanding of why you would think that that reflected anything bad on Paul or John to me it's like judging yeah. a horny teenage couple who are like making out in the bedroom and then one of them says well you know our really good friend George he has nice legs maybe yeah he would be nice to sleep with too and then and then the other one's like nah and then they start making out again and that's that like yeah, yeah that's about as like I don't think there was anything <laughs> exactly, exactly I don't think there was any like plot it was just like you are so hot oh you're so hot oh my god get over exactly, it oh, exactly <laughs> like they were just really into each other and nothing else felt as good as being with each other I kind of get the sense of that's a little bit of what's going on here too. But John could say, yeah, whatever, this is shit in a certain way. We hear like John kind of have that, like, I should be able to take what you give me and what I like and get rid of the rest. Um, And sometimes like your directions, you want to take things are great and you're right. Other times they're wrong. Also in part one, it seems like they've had this discussion before to Mm, a degree, right? Where Paul says, um, sometimes we blow one of your songs because we come in in a bad mood or something yeah and then gosh like I think he's just like and then like you walk off or something so it seems like they're kind of saying slightly different things there like I feel like Paul potentially feels rightly or wrongly that in some cases John has gotten tired or given up and so then Paul kind of steps in um, but in terms of what we see and get back, 
you know, with that don't let me down thing, he's checking in all the time. John's like, I want the piano. And Paul's like, really? Like piano? And you can tell he's kind of like, <laughs> what? And <laughs> well, then, how would that work? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but then he like tries to figure out how to make it work. Do we bring in Nikki Hopkin or whatever? You know, like, so he's trying to figure out how to like move John's idea forward. Yeah, it's really like that's where the piano would come in. You know? See, would you have piano on it? Yeah, I like the idea of piano. But how do we do that? Uh, one of us play bass, George play bass. But then there's no guitars. <laughs> well, it's either you or him, or a bass player, or a pianist. You know, if we need somebody else, yes. it'd probably be like a, a guy that plays piano all the time. Somebody like or anybody. Nicky Hopkins. Yeah, so he's he's performing that role, and he is also having to uh, step in and say when he really doesn't think that a direction is going well. And he talks about this in this NME interview with Dan Stubbs in 2018. Now he says this in response to the question of what he would say to his 28 year old self if he could. What I first thought of was listen to people's opinions more, particularly within the group. But I did listen to people's opinions. And what would happen was I would feel like I had to give my opinion and not get too nervous because you've got to be strong in those situations. There were times when John would bring a song in and I could have just gone, that's great, John, let's do it like that. But the producer in me would think, no, that's not going to work. Why don't we try it like that? So something like Come Together would never have been as cool if I had just been listening to the way John brought it in. So we have Paul trying to realize John's dream. In some cases, he's trying to polish what John has brought in in a way that goes along with what John wants. And then occasionally it looks like what he's talking about here is maybe um, a situation where John is trying to, to move a song in a certain direction and Paul really doesn't think it works, but he has to speak up for his ideas in a time like this. It's like reach out. Remember, you don't reach out or everything stops and just gets... Get back, Jojo. What do you think? George wants that he's not getting. Well, if we look at his his you know post Beatles reactions and feelings about John and Paul, going off that, I would have to say that it appears that George cares more about being listened to and having input on other people's songs mm-hmm. than he values other people com- contributing to his own. I which I think is weird because I'm completely the opposite. <laughs> But so it doesn't make any sense, you know, to me, but that appears to be the case for George. And here is what George had to say in his own words in 1992 in an interview. I will play the part of the interviewer, (laughs) Senor Garbarini, and Iris will be George. So Garbarini asks, was Paul trying to just hold the band together or was he becoming a control freak or was it a bit of both? Well... Sometimes Paul dictated for the better of a song, but at the same time, he also preempted some good stuff that could have gone in a different direction. George Martin did that too, but they've all apologized to me for all that over the years. But you were pissed off enough about all this to leave the band for a short time during the Let It Be sessions. Reportedly, this problem had been brewing for a while. What was it that upset you about what Paul was doing? At that point in time, Paul couldn't see beyond himself. He was so on a roll, but it was a roll encompassing his own self. 
in his mind, everything that was going on around him was just there to accompany him. He wasn't sensitive to stepping on other people's egos or feelings. Having said that, when it came time to do the occasional song of mine, although it was usually difficult to get to that point, Paul would always be really creative with what he'd contribute. For instance, that galloping piano part on While My Guitar Gently Weeps was Paul's, and it's brilliant right to this day. And you just have to listen to the bass line on something to know that when he wanted to, Paul could give a lot. But you know, there was a time there when... I think it's called being human and young. <sighs> it is. <laughs> it really is. That was such a good sign. That was a really excellent, excellent <laughs> performance by the two of you. Thank you. Thank you. So I like this quote a lot, guys. Um, it is from 1992. So George is a little older and a little more mature here. I do like that he said he wasn't sensitive to people's egos, because at least that acknowledges that George had an ego too. Yeah. I, I really like the part where the interviewer interjects. And it's like it's <laughs> called being human and young. And because George is about to kind of continue, <laughs> there was a time when Garbrini is just like, yeah, well, and then George has to like take a pause. It's like, okay, um, my rant mode was activated, but maybe I can step back and realize that we were kids. And I think that's just such an important thing to look at is, yeah, I think it's, it's worth giving them a lot of credit, um, especially Paul and John from what we can see and get back for kind of being aware and sensitive of one another um, in different ways and to varying degrees, potentially. I also just uh, listened to this interview with George Martin, where he's again pointing out how young they were when they oh, showed up. Yeah. I mean, he misremembered and thought that Paul and George were 18 but they were 19 and Paul almost 20, but that's still very young. And he yeah. made the point that um, they fame kind of ruined the chance for them to have more of that kind of extended young adulthood. And yet you can still see that they're, you know, to varying degrees, being careful of one another, Ringo's being very sensitive to all of them as well. Yeah. And superstardom is so hard on everybody, but especially young people. Mm-hmm. Okay, but in this quote, George is very explicit that Paul was good at contributing and giving. He okay. just wasn't receptive to other people's suggestions. Mm -hmm. And he was insensitive. I still see people claim that Paul doesn't show sufficient interest or enthusiasm in George's music, but that's not supported by A, the movie that I saw, all Things Must Pass, which they did a million takes of, Abbey Road, I, Me, Mine, which Paul came in and worked on in January of 1970, or B, George's own testimony from right here. Yeah. That's not what George complains about. He's very explicit that Paul was never stingy about pitching in on his songs. When they finally got around to them. Yes, yes, which is not just a paul problem mostly a john and paul problem but also kind of a george mm -hmm. martin problem which is that he mm -hmm. doesn't he wants more space on the albums yeah well and this goes back to um something that we're talking about before paul doesn't want to step on george's toes with giving suggestions right it's sort of like well like yeah. these other suggestions that um i was invited to make on john's song 
weren't well received so I'm just not going to do that and George reads that as him not necessarily being that interested because I was thinking that even though he says here that Paul could give a lot what he might be comparing that to is his own behavior when he's chiming in every five seconds mm -hmm. on get back well, why don't we you know, use your Rick, do this, do that. And he's bossing Paul around. <laughs> on his own song um but it's it's out of enthusiasm and he isn't seeing maybe that same kind of energy from paul and maybe not knowing why and maybe because he feels like he's he is coming from um, a disadvantage in the songwriting uh, world that he takes this as paul is just not interested and only grudgingly uh, is doing this whereas paul could just be actually worried about stepping on George's ego by suggesting a bunch of things, especially if he's been hearing from John about how John isn't happy that Paul takes songs in directions he doesn't want to go. Yeah. Well, and then there's also the issue of like, how articulate have the two of them been about those specific issues? Because in Get Back, at least in the lunchroom, we can hear John being fairly articulate about what the problem is from his point of view on his songs uh -huh. but we don't know how long he's been able to say that or or even how I, you know what i mean like how, like when he realized that that was the issue and yeah. for george i don't know has he been saying this to paul for three years and paul hasn't been listening to him or has he just has, has he just had a moment you know in the past year where he's really come into his own and he and he's been like you know what no. I yeah. mean, the latter seems far more likely, right? I would think so. Yeah, because George isn't going to suffer in silence. Like, I don't believe that yeah. he, um, like, if he could articulate it this way, I don't believe that he wouldn't have. There's also the just the irreconcilable differences aspect of it. Like he did, let's say he did say something like that about the Hey Jude kind of suggestions he was making, like, I really want to do this. And Paul just said no i mean for the good of the song no like this is what i have in mind and that's how i want it to be mm -hmm. then there's there's no real way around that and i think it gets sort of turned into because paul had ideas about his songs he never was open to suggestion i mean like we saw him get back and, I, and other occasions too right like with eleanor rigby and some other songs that he's open to lyric suggestions and right. uh like we've seen like he was open to arrangement suggestions from glenn johns right <laughs> so mm -hmm. it's it's really kind of like to what degree is this something that went on and you could just say okay yeah george it sucks that you feel like a session man but equally um if Paul has this vision for the song and he wants to do it this way, unless you can really show him how like shitty or corny it is without using those words. And the other thing is, does anyone agree with you? What does George Martin say? What does John say yeah. uh, about these other ways of doing it? I mean, there's just, there's no way around it and neither of them are wrong necessarily. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Paul also went along with the idea of make, of making two of us acoustic. He's willing to try in some cases but in some cases if he's not that's also okay <laughs> so yeah sure sure yeah and then when paul brings up that hey jude thing again 
ill-advisedly. <laughs> yeah. Well, I oh know, but okay. So I'll give you a different take on that because I've seen, I, I've seen, like <laughs> not that I of... think it's not that I think it's a terrible thing for Paul to have referenced, but it obviously just was not what George wanted to hear. <laughs> so it's kind of like. I, I kind of feel like they need to be talking about what the problem is. Like, I feel like that's a conversation yeah. that they actually need to have. And mm-hmm. my friend who I watched it with, he was like, oh, this is what happens when people are afraid to have confrontations. I was like, well, oh yeah, that's them for sure. That's true. <laughs> like, they can't even <laughs> like have 100%. a fucking normal fight. They're just having yeah. a confrontation while avoiding confrontation. Mm-hmm. and it's just gonna get worse like they won't talk to each other because they don't want to fight with each other and they need to just fight it out you need to have disputes sometimes and you just have to power through Tools. them yeah. like put your feelings aside and like work through whatever it is that is bothering you and you like you got to speak up and say what it is and i think everybody would agree that that's one of the biggest problems within the beatles is that they're not communicating bluntly directly yeah directly yeah I, I thought it was kind of courageous for paul to bring that up actually because nobody will say what the thing is they just keep dancing around stuff and being passive aggressive yeah well and maybe the, the communication breakdown well part of why they can't be so direct about it is because they never used to have to be they had their kind of telepathy and they could communicate indirectly better and now that's just not good enough for them anymore well there's an interesting quote from john in i want to say 1964 where he says we never have fights we start to fight and then we all agree to just let it go because it's not worth it and i was like well that's not healthy (laughs) already established this in 1964 like you what you have a no fights policy <laughs> and John described himself as non-confrontational, and Cynthia described him as non-confrontational too. Like John does not like confrontations, right? So that's what I was wondering with the um, the "Don't Let Me Down" discussion. Is like, you know, where where John said that his his um, way of protecting himself from being steamrolled by Paul was to try to interest George in the song. It seemed like John and Paul were mostly on the same page there, but like. You know how it can be when um, you go like, well, you like this, don't you? <laughs> right? Like this kind of leading question, like <laughs> to what extent could Paul's checking in have been like, yeah, you know, you love this <laughs> like back and forth <laughs> thing, right? And then John's like, uh, <laughs> like my only hope is for George to just say it's shit. I don't know. The part that I remember is when he confronts him directly it's like one of the only times anybody confronts anybody paul's like fine fuck it i'm not you know what i don't give a shit i'm not gonna push it anymore even though like i know i'm right and he looks at john he goes and you know i'm right and john's like why Paul says the only place where it works is the last line. That's when George sounds really frustrated and goes, Paul, forget the last line. Right. Um, Paul, forget the last line. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, because it's like, and and George is like, you don't annoy me anymore. And I was like, um, I think everybody just fucking heard. (laughs) (laughs) You were annoying. Like, who are you trying to fool with this? George goes, it's awful, actually, after Paul's positive about it. And then both John and Paul ask him to come up with something else. Well, it almost seemed like they kind of did sort of a classic creation cycle that that artists are 
familiar with where they they have their idea they're going to echo john right and so they try it every single way they can think of Mm -hmm. and still not everyone's happy and then at some point they must have discovered the solution of oh we just won't do it yeah exactly (laughs) cut it out of the song oh that's just the artistic process yeah yeah you have to get through the bad ideas sometimes to get to what works yeah exactly it's just trial and error yeah I've seen people being like, well, this is exactly what John was talking about, about Paul's horrible arrangement ideas. And it's like, well, (laughs) A, (laughs) Paul's ideas for John's songs were great. And B, it it didn't happen. Yeah, right. They realized it was not the way to go. They just tried it the same way they try one after 909, like as a bossa nova mm-hmm. and then a cha-cha and then a rocker yeah. and what it, it, it this doesn't mean that they're that's the arrangement like they're just fucking around with it just yeah they're just to, experimenting here's something though did it did you guys think that at times it it seemed like paul and george swapped which approach they were advocating for like sometimes george is saying you know <laughs> seems to be saying let's just jam or vamp till we get it Whereas Paul wants to stop if he thinks something's going wrong and fix it and be methodical. Yeah, right. <laughs> but then other times it's George who wants to like give sculpture to his guitar part mm. before they move up, before they even finish exactly. the run through of the song. And Paul's like, no, no, just keep it simple for now. And then do that stuff later. To me, that seems like they mm-hmm. they both recognize the value of each approach. They just want to apply it they're just button heads at different times they're yeah. just not compatible yeah, yeah they're just button heads over and over again they're not arguing about what they're arguing about they're arguing because george is resentful of paul and has been building up this resentment for a couple years i think there is this underlying issue maybe especially with paul just because george wants them to have that that happy writing songs commune what could it be, Paul? Something in the way she moves. What attracted me at all? Just say whatever comes in the head each time attracts me like a cauliflower until you get the word. To your point about George wants to be in another band, Iris, the Traveling Wilburys is a perfect example because what George wants is like a fresh environment where he doesn't have 15 years of baggage with people. Baggage. <laughs> It's like the um, the quote from Pendulette. You can open a dry cleaning business with somebody. You don't, you're just business partners. You know what I mean? You don't blame mm-hmm. him for all the problems in your life. And that's not the relationship you have with the guy who you run the dry cleaning business with. I believe that the volatile groups, um, uh, Lennon and McCartney, Martin and Lewis, Gilbert and Sullivan, uh, you don't have teams nowadays. We have to go back in time. But um, Martin and Lewis, and especially Leonard McCartney, those two groups, um, were love affairs. Those were two people who fell in love. Leonard McCartney was certainly in love. And then when things start to not go right, uh, love is heartbreaking. Teller and I started without any natural affection at all. I didn't have that. You know that feeling you have of wanting to hug somebody or wanting to be around them or really feel affectionate toward them, which I feel towards a lot of people. I never felt toward Teller, but it was built on respect. And um, respect is more important than love. I've always believed that what I did with Teller was better than what I do alone. 
And um, we're like two guys that run a dry cleaning shop or something. And we don't get along. It's not bad at all. We kind of assume we're not going to get along. We're business partners. So the guy who cleans the slurping machine pisses you off. So what? He cleans the slurping machine. You deal with it, you know? So I feel like that's yeah. kind of the situation with George, too. It's like he's not blaming Bob Dylan for all the stuff that went wrong in his life and how he, mm. you know, couldn't evolve as a guitarist or whatever. Like none of that is Tom Petty's fault. You know what I'm saying? So it's like a clean slate <laughs> yeah. with those guys. There will never be a clean slate with the Beatles. They just have too much baggage at this point. John said something similar in 1976. You know, like people do when they're together, they start picking on each other. You know, it was like, it's because of you, you'd got the tambourine wrong that my whole life is a misery. You know, it became petty, but the manifestations were on each other because we were the only ones we had. It's stupid, you know, it is just stupid. You see, the thing that the people doing being stupid are false. Yeah, we need to be creative instead of being, you know, like doldrums, which it always is. When I rewatched Get Back, in terms of sort of like, eh, not great interaction, not great behavior, such as like sort of the lower level, like speaking over each other, not listening, interrupting each other. Mm-hmm. It's about even between George and Paul. Uh, when I first watched it, I was way more sensitive to the times when Paul was doing it um, but then I rewatched it and it's about even however George is the only one you know saying that it sounds like shit and oh I think it's awful yeah yeah that's right. <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah and if someone else had brought it in you would think it was awful. Yeah, yeah. 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 George is the only one who says things that are that sort of directly and bluntly critical but I feel like for most fans there's definitely an assumption that no matter that whatever George is dishing out, he has definitely taken that from Paul in the past to a much more degree. So there's, there's hardly anything that he could do at this point that wouldn't be justified because of his past treatment. But why do people believe that? Do we have any evidence that that happened? Have we ever seen or even gotten a hint of that from from anything we've seen between Paul and George? There's that one quote from... From Norman Smith, who said that Paul could be impatient. Well, he's like, and the things that Paul was saying to George, I was just shocked that he would be say such terrible things and George just took it. But that's, that's very true. vague. We don't know what that yeah. means. So yeah, that, that's kind of just like saying, I think Paul's terrible. This person said Paul was terrible. I'm like, oh, well, that's fine. Maybe that person doesn't like Paul, which is valid. But without examples, it's literally impossible for us to judge that. Yeah. Yeah, so it, it just, kind of is. He could have been saying very, you know, trying to be super polite and been like, George, what about that simpler thing that we talked about, like that you were doing before? You know, like he could have been doing something like that, which Norman perceived as being worse because it was yeah. kind of condescending or something like that. Well, I don't think so. I mean, maybe that was part of it, but the actual quote from Norman Smith, who was the Beatles engineer from 62 to 65, is reported in a book, Beatles Songs by William J. Dowdling. And what Norman Smith says is this. 
With Rubber Soul, the clash between John and Paul was becoming obvious. Also, George Harrison was having to put up with an awful lot from Paul. We now had the luxury of four-track recording, so George would put his solo on afterwards. But as far as Paul was concerned, George could do no right. Paul was absolutely finicky. So what would happen was that on certain songs, Paul himself played the solos. I would wonder what the hell was going on because George would have done two or three takes. And to me, they were really quite okay. But Paul would be saying, no, no, no. And he'd start quoting American records, telling him to play exactly as he'd heard on such and such a song. So we'd go back from the top and George would really get into it. Then would come Paul's comment. Okay, the first 16 bars weren't bad, but that middle, dot, dot, dot. Then Paul would take over and do it himself. Subsequently, I discovered that George Harrison had been hating Paul's bloody guts for this, but it didn't show itself. In fact, I take my hat off to George Harrison that he swallowed what he had to swallow in terms of criticism from Paul. Okay, well, then I'm inclined to agree with you then. Because, uh, I mean, it, it, <laughs> it's still not exactly the well, sure, the quotes from him, but we can certainly judge his behavior. He's definitely yeah, like not oh. awesome. No, he's definitely telling George what to do. Um, that's not a matter of opinion. That's just like a fact. He's being critical mm-hmm. for, for sure. So yeah. even even if he was saying it nicely, which it doesn't sound like he was particularly yeah (laughs) no not really but even if he was being nice about it he was being very critical for a long time yeah so yeah there is also that i have heard in a 1965 interview i've heard the audio where they're talking about i don't remember what and paul just kind of volunteers out of nowhere he says you just write daft songs george sort of apropos of nothing so those mm-hmm. are the two examples that I know of specifically how Paul could be dismissive and overly critical of George. And of course, that would absolutely create justified hurt feelings and resentment, and it would make George less receptive to Paul's ideas, and it would make him not shy about speaking up bluntly when he thought Paul's work deserved criticism. That's really easy to see. Uh, yeah. I love that saying about how your family will always be able to push your buttons because they're the ones who installed them. <clears throat> and I think that's super true generally and for the Beatles. But on the other hand, it's fair to note that Paul also has reason to bring some past resentment toward George into the get back sessions, most notably the LSD conflict. Mm-hmm. And that kind of goes along with why I think bringing up the Hey Jude solo was not the greatest choice for Paul in that moment. And this is based purely on vibes from from me watching. But what I saw in George's reaction was like, you know how sometimes when you have a sort of standing conflict with someone close to you and it comes up kind of in your relationship again and again, but there does happen to be one instance from the past that you hashed out afterward and mutually agreed. Yeah. The other, the, the other was in the right on that particular instance. And so then whenever it comes up again, that person always brings up the one time they were in the right. Mm. <laughs> and that would be so frustrating. Like, you know, just because you were right that one time doesn't mean you're right 
now. Not everything is the Hey Jude solo, Paul. Yeah, that that would be true if if we knew that they yeah, had. I mean, like just... I say, that's what I see vibe wise when George kind of hears that and he kind of shuts down is like whatever fine it seems like he's heard it before and that it he feels like it's um obviously he's not going to get anywhere with Paul in that moment so he just kind of goes whatever okay so I agree with you that if it is a past wound that has been semi healed over scabbed over Mm -hmm. whatever then yes don't pick it like you you shouldn't go back to past wounds and bring them up that's ill-advised however if it's an opened wound that they haven't made peace with i guess that's kind of where i come down on it sure if if it's the elephant in the room then i think yeah that paul should go ahead and and talk about it but it but you're right if it is if it's just scabbing over then for god's sake paul let it go (laughs) you know (laughs) that's not helpful so Norman is basically painting a picture where Paul is being critical of George in a sort of a one-sided situation. And maybe this comes down to a matter of like quantity versus quality, because it might not actually be the quality of what Paul's saying. Like, like honestly, if you're looking objectively at Norman's statements of, of what Paul says, it's not- right. There's nothing really bad. He says, okay, the first 16 bars weren't bad. That was okay. Um, But that middle, we still need to work on. Like, that's something a teacher could say to you. And there's objectively nothing bad about that. However, of course, I I think in aggregate. Yes. And if it's so much so that George feels attacked. um, And just not appreciated. Well, exactly. Like if if it's um, demoralizing, then. Yeah has the opposite effect that doesn't necessarily mean that paul was saying anything like objectively awful which just makes it harder it just kind of makes this a little harder to litigate well and then we don't get this kind of pushback to john like with the dave clark comment right about ringo's drumming in polythene pam and we have george martin saying that um paul and john could be cruel to one another but that's just how they were so even if Paul is in there going like, George, I can't believe I ever suggested that you join this group. It's so embarrassing. I don't know, whatever. Um, Maybe Norman Smith heard something that was quite normal um, between all of them. Uh, And George had actually just finished telling Paul he was full of corny shit again, (laughs) or however he, so. Or Paul could have said something terrible. We don't know. So we have no, we have no reason to just fill in the blanks with our worst assumptions. Yeah, it's, it's really bad faith. Exactly. We have to base it on what we've heard. And we, we actually do have quite a bit of tape from various Beatles sessions that we can listen to. And we have a little bit of footage, like we have all of Get Back Now, the Hey Jude sessions, but we've got, you know, studio patter from Sgt. Pepper and from all the early Beatles albums. I don't remember ever hearing anything that was mean. The worst I remember hearing is Paul shushing the guys (laughs) between take, you know, like when a take was about to start or whatever. (laughs) It's kind of annoying, but other than that. The Beatles certainly can speak harshly with one another. Yeah, yeah, they can be dicks. And probably something that wouldn't bother them on one day might (laughs) another day be really hurtful just based on 
how everyone's feeling at the time, what happened at lunch, tones of voices. Certain amount of dickishness is expected, maybe even appreciated. Maybe sometimes, you know, it's funny or it's fun or or even they can show affection that way. But Mm -hmm. sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's not. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and there's also just the fact that if George could be that bitter for that long and be and be that level of hurt you know he can't be reacting to nothing that's true but i but i also don't think that that means we can emphatically say what it was yeah there's an assumption being made the only assumption that i think we can emphatically make is that it meant a lot to george whatever it was because if it didn't he would blow it off and just be like whatever anyway mccartney Glad I'm out of that group. Wow, what a roller coaster. <laughs> Paul is George's best man at his wedding to Patty, isn't he? In like 66. Mm-hmm. So this idea that it's this, it's been this sort of festering wound. I mean, I'm not, not to say that he couldn't have musical differences with Paul and still have him as his best man, but I don't know. It just it doesn't seem to kind of fit right to me. Yeah. It holds just as much water to me. The idea that he went through some personal spiritual shit in, you know, 67, 68, where he was like, I need more than this out of life. You know, I'm sick of being in the Beatles. I'm sick of being trapped between John and Paul, you know, staring at the floor all the time because it's uncomfortable to be stuck between the middle of them. My life is wasting away mm-hmm. in this situation yep. that I really want to get out of. I mean, that's one of probably his most famous song that he ever wrote, you know? So mm-hmm. I understand where he's like, I need to get away from this. I'm unhappy. Like, why am I unhappy? I mean, that's a, a question that they all kind of get to in 67, 68 with the fame and like the euphoria of the hippie culture. And then like the drugs are wearing off there's all this political backlash in 1968 and there's assassinations and riots and like crazy shit's going on and a lot of people at that time were like what is life for what what is the point of all this you know Mm -hmm. everybody's having an emotional crisis at that point so i can see for george who's been in this cocoon of the beatles for so long and he's been wrapped up in it since he was a child literally like he lost his virginity with these guys in the room i mean he's had no life without them yeah until he's finally like coming out as a adult man in 68 going i hate this i hate what it's turned me into i hate all of our rhythms that we can't break out of i hate my role here that they won't let me out of Mm -hmm. i just got to get out of here and then by the time he gets out of it he's bitter because now he's rich, he has mansions, he has groupies, his marriage is for shit, he's not happy, and he needs someone to blame that on. Yep. The Beatles were security. They were like a trap for him in some ways, or he felt that they were like a prison in some ways, but also security. And so you have to have a reason that it didn't work out. Yeah. Um, and what do you remember? Oh, maybe if you were like taking too long to get your solo right, maybe Paul seemed eager to do yep. it. So he, yeah, so let's, let's blame him. And I'm not saying this to, you know, jerk Paul off or anything, but it must be hard to work with like two overpoweringly great artists and feel like you're not going to be quite as good as them 
which yeah. is most people. I mean, it's not like I'm not in trying to insult George and saying he's not as good as John and Paul, but like John and Paul were legends at age 25, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And still are, you know, they never really lost that luster. That's a terrible shadow to live under. It would be hard for anybody to find their their niche in life in that kind of a shadow. Yeah. I mean, when was the music of Lennon McCartney? Was that 65? Yeah. Yeah. So you already have this TV special about how amazing (laughs) your bandmates are. Yes, that's a good example because that special was celebrating their songwriting, not even the Beatles. Yeah. 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 It was like all hail Lennon McCartney. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. And then not even like a a, trying to maliciously blame Paul, right? But just a sort of sense of like, there must be a reason for this. And potentially, you know, here's my cause. And then you get into the lawsuit where it becomes even more convenient to kind of pin all of this on him. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, John blamed a lot of it on Paul too, and his parents. I mean, you got to dump it somewhere. Again, I'm not picking on George for this, but, and I think he actually talked about this too. It's like he didn't want to be picked over in public for his mistakes, but I, I can't think of a time where he has sort of publicly said that he's been wrong about something. So it's just unbalanced. I think... He did have that one line, don't examine a friend through. Yeah, yeah, right, right, right. <laughs> yeah. And he's like, maybe there's stuff about me that drove Paul crazy. Yeah, but right, right. As he's pushing have... 50. <laughs> yes. And it's and it's a situation where it's it's so extremely imbalanced because not it, it would be unbalanced even if George were just saying, well, Paul did all this. And Paul on the other side was saying, well, George did all this. But yeah, George isn't admitting any fault and Paul isn't giving him any blame. Not right, really. Right, right. So right. it just is a completely like terrible way to kind of look at it. And it just is sort of received wisdom. Uh, Michael Gerber on Dull Blog made a made an interesting comment about how he gets the sense that Paul came to represent to George all of the problems of famous life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's astute. <laughs> that they kind of got confused in his mind because he had obviously was so conflicted and had so much trauma and baggage and pain about the craziness of of fame I thought that was a pretty good um observation and also would definitely account for the fact that Paul just he could never make it up to George and didn't really know why or how yeah yeah well it does make sense if you're traumatized by something like that and then one person in the car seems to have come out unscathed you're going to be like Mm -hmm. what kind of fucking devil magic did you do Mm -hmm. like you should you should be destroyed like the rest of us yeah Yeah. also um george is having trouble with patty and then he's got both john and paul who are with yoko and linda and you know the first flush of love or the depths of it and he's got this really rocky situation at home too so he's yeah. And Eric Clapton to deal with. Oh, <laughs> <yes>. <laughs> yeah. So what even? <laughs> <laughs> His own private hell at home. <laughs> before oh, before we leave Eric Clapton, did you do you guys agree that it feels like we're watching the second half of a conversation? 
why is George so fixated on explaining in detail why he doesn't play guitar like Eric Clapton? Did anyone wonder why he specifically says John with the Eric Clapton thing? Why do you think he does that? If like he's insecure about not being able to, to play like Clapton, why is he addressing this to John? I mean, maybe they had had a conversation about it earlier or something. So I watched episode friend. one with <laughs> yeah, the friend who is not deeply entrenched in Beatles. Um, he knows the basics, but he really has no dog in the fight because he doesn't care at all about the Beatles. Um, he immediately was like, whoa, 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 whoa. Why is he mentioning Eric Clapton? That's the second time he's mentioned. What the hell is going on? Hmm. And then I was like, oh, well, George is having marital problems at the moment. And there's some shit going on with Clapton where Clapton slept with some girl who was friends with his wife. And that girl's now over at their house or something. And, and you know, Clapton <laughs> like married his wife at some point. And uh, so there's all kind of like weird inferiority stuff going on and he was like uh -huh. that's fucked up george is clearly going through something they need to stop right now and pull him aside and be like what the fuck is going on this is a big red flag i'm so glad that i'm not the only one <laughs> the first thing i thought was like well maybe he's just you know he's a fan of his friend eric and he's a fan of him but then he switches to talking about ray charles and billy preston and that's when he's obviously fanboy and then when he goes back to talking about Eric, there's this strain, this tenseness. And uh, it was hard to watch. I'm like, why are you explaining in detail to John how you are not like Eric Clapton? Why? Yeah, it was very odd. Well, and then there's a whole another layer to it when later in the episode, John's like, we'll just bring in Clapton when George well, yeah. quits. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that makes it look in like in retrospect, it makes it look more like a thing where George feels inferior to Clapton in John's eyes. Because hmm. why else would John bring it up specifically like to needle George, you know? Which according to Michael Lindsay Hogg, John did while George was still within earshot. Ooh. Yeah. John was a more fragile being, which is partly what caused him to react very quickly to provocation. Like when George quit the group, this was at the lunch, before George was out of the room, John said, let's get in Eric Clapton. Uh, he plays just as well and he's not such a headache. Boom, like that. Yeah. Although I have to wonder, like, is Michael Lindsay Hogg remembering wrong? Because, or maybe John, well, he, maybe John said it twice. Oh, yeah, I would imagine he would. Yeah. Yeah. Because the time that we hear on the tapes, he goes, no, John we'll just bring Clapton in. It almost sounds as if it's mm -hmm. something he's already said. Mm -hmm. hmm. Yeah, which is weird. And then, you know, John does end up using Clapton in the the Plastic Ono band in Toronto. That's and right. So, like, Eric Clapton has a weird role in Beatles history. Yeah. Wasn't Clapton in Rock and Roll Circus? Okay. What was their name? They were called like the Plastic Macs or something or the Dirty Mac. <laughs> I know. It's a good name. I hate to use Eric Clapton as an example because I 
because he's trash and I don't want to praise him. Yeah, mm-hmm. he's human right. garbage. But um, like the one thing that he can do is he could go up and improvise a solo to you know any song. Like he's just he yes. gets in there, he's in the pocket, he can do it. George can't do that. And George is mm-hmm. he's not like that. He crafts things carefully, individually, and he likes to take his time. And he can yeah. yes. produce lovely work, but he the, he's in a very fast-paced band that's throwing ideas out at a thousand miles an hour. So, mm-hmm. and and Ringo is the same way. Ringo picks it up immediately. Like he gets the song in a second. So I understand Paul's frustration too. I think it requires an enormous amount of patience on Paul's part to include George in the creative process. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, we don't see him being rude in Get Back, although I think he was definitely capable of that. And I'm like 99% sure that George is one of those people that like, as soon as someone is like watching them critically, they start making mistakes. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. As soon as someone's looking over their shoulder, they go to pieces a little bit. But you're a performer. (laughs) I know. I know. I'm uh, yeah. Yeah, And I think that George is someone who has like off days too. Well, that's the other thing too, is like, it is very disheartening when you know that you're pretty good at something like, yes, you can can really do it pretty good, Mm -hmm. but not always. If the conditions are right. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And then to see somebody's just swoop in and do a great version of it that you objectively can't criticize. Oh man, that would piss me off. Yeah. It almost wouldn't make sense if he didn't resent Paul. Yes. Mm-hmm. But but it, yeah, but then it's uh, then it stays too long on the other one. But it's it's like I think Paul deserves credit for trying to help the other realize their visions. For example, he did a taxman solo he thought George would be into, and he tried to help John realize his strawberry fields forever dreams. I think it takes a lot of maturity to try to lead someone toward their goal rather than putting your own stamp on it, or without thinking of what someone else's vision is. And George, George did appreciate uh, the taxman solo. He said, and Paul did a little Indian, Indian thing, thing on it for me. Yeah, so we so we know that Paul that Paul threw that in because it was George's song, and I think that's really sweet. And I don't think George was hung up about the taxman solo at all. I think he was totally fine. Well, he's mentioned it a couple times as yeah. something that he didn't mind. Uh, yeah. So so Paul is thinking about where other people are going, what they might want to hear, what they might want their song to look like. And it just reminded me of uh, when I was younger and in that same writing group that I mentioned before, um, if somebody had wanted feedback on a project, I would sometimes be thinking in terms of what I would wanna do if I were doing the project. And sometimes Mm -hmm. that didn't line up with how the person receiving the feedback wanted to do things. I would sort of go, well, here, you know, if, if I were starting from this point, I would just head out in this direction. But the person who was best at providing feedback modeled how to tease out and support someone's idea without becoming more your project instead of theirs. And mm-hmm. he had been someone who's providing that kind of feedback for 30 years. It's right. really hard. And yeah. so when you see someone Paul's age at that time trying to do it, maybe not always successfully, but trying. Yeah. I think that he does kind of deserve that kind of credit and maybe he does have that kind of taking over instinct sometimes too, (laughs) (laughs) but I'd like to look into what taking over means or what heading off other good directions looks like. 
are we talking about Paul maybe not being open to other directions on his own songs, which George sometimes complains about, or on the other songs? And if they are talking about, say, a John song, like it seems John is in the lunchroom tapes, I think it's worth looking at when that may have happened because John had given up or the song was in trouble. So we have some Jeff Emmerich feedback on that issue. John used to find it uh, hard to express himself. And I, I was in a position where I really had to read, read his mind. Um, and he didn't have a lot of patience. Uh, and he would uh, accept something that was sort of 95% good, if, uh, whereas Paul would want it 100% good. So Paul, to me, has always been the, the musician and the one that sort of held the band and, and brought them to, the, to, the, to that sort of perfection part of, of things, where John would let things easily go. And also John, of course, did not like the sound of his voice either. In the beginning, it was presented with, you know, as John, John the leader. I mean, I think on the back yes. of the Beatles, it even yeah, says on their leader, John Lennon. Yeah. Um, was that accurate? I didn't really focus in on that at all. I mean, I just knew what I saw, you know, happen within the confines of the, the studio, that like Paul was the sort of the one that sort of saved the situation always, and the one who always went that little bit extra to, to, to perfect things, you know, especially, of course, on, on Paul's songs, we'd spend, you know, a, a considerable amount of time doing Paul's songs because, of, you know, he knew exactly really what he wanted, whereas John didn't. Um, so John, the, the time that was spent on some of John's songs was a bit less than Paul's songs. But if Paul, I think, thought that a John's song was going slightly a bit, you know, lopsided, he'd, he'd interject and, and sort of make sure it, it really was polished, you know. That last bit indicates that Paul was looking out for John too, which is a lot to ask, honestly. Like there are four people in a band, or let's say there's like three songwriters in a band. It's enough of a job to look out for your own songs. Yep, It's kind of above and beyond for Paul to be looking out for John and making sure that John's vision is realized. Yeah. Because that really is the producer's job. Yeah, that's true. Paul was absolutely involved and committed to every detail of, right. of the Beatles as an artistic entity. Absolutely. And being a good partner. Yeah. yeah. It doesn't mean that John was 100% satisfied 100% of the time. No. <laughs> no, absolutely not. <laughs> Obviously you know. not. Yeah. yeah, but it means that everybody is looking out for him and trying to do the best that they can. It's a very difficult task to interpret artistically what is in somebody else's head. That's yeah. just hard. So I think one of the most complicated parts of this discussion is the fact that there's that expectation that Paul mentor and nurture George. And that if, if Paul doesn't take time to nurture George, then it's a failure of leadership on Paul's part. Yeah. But on the other hand, George is asking to be treated as Paul's equal, which is an entirely different issue. So yeah. I think there's not really a clear definition of what the expectations are, meaning like George's expectations, Paul's expectation, and then the fandom's expectations of, of Paul <laughs> and George, right? Yeah. Which yeah. ultimately the fandom's expectations are not important and shouldn't be important, but unfortunately are important you know they become important because the expectations of outsiders absolutely inform the ways that the Beatles are written about 
mm-hmm. and talked about. And we all know that who writes history is extremely important because those people control the narratives. Yeah, and I feel like he's um, sympathetic to George too. Like I feel like he's trying to coax him along when George is like, oh, my songs are slow ones. And then Paul goes, mine are too. And the criticism of Paul is that he's too overbearing without intending to, he'll sort of kidnap the song from people. And he's, I think, gotten uh-huh. enough feedback at that point where the guys are like, will you fucking chill, please? Like, <laughs> let me work my song out. You know what I mean? Like, I don't need you to arrange it and write the piano and the bass and the guitar and all that sort of stuff and the drum part. Mm-hmm. So if that's the feedback he's gotten when George brings a song in, he steps back. Like, that's what we see in Get Back with All Things Must Pass, whatever. Paul steps out of the spotlight and lets George run the show. But the problem is that George doesn't know how he wants to run the show or he's uncomfortable running the show or whatever it is. So I I think that George is giving off a lot of mixed signals specifically to Paul, um, but Mm -hmm. sort of in general. And my feeling watching it is that George already came in with a chip on his shoulder against Paul and was setting Paul up to fail the whole time. And I'm not saying that everything Paul did was right. You know, he tried a couple of different tacks, you know, he tried to step Mm -hmm. back. He tried to push it along and, and George was, you know, not working. He was not responding. Yeah. Yeah. He's being like a combination of like unresponsive, pessimistic, um, and just hostile to Paul. they just all have different relationships with each other like john is more of a peer because there are some areas where john gets more praise than paul does Mm -hmm. sure and john knows that paul 100 percent respects him as an equal and adores him loves him right so John has that to be secure about as well. Yeah. Well, I mean, unless he, unless he is insecure. Yeah. yeah so see, except for when he's insecure and spiraling. But yes. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and vice versa, which is why I think Paul can take John's uh, criticisms and his, his rejections, creative rejections. Well, yeah. Get Back made a lot more sense of that for me. I would be able to take a lot too if I knew that that's how that person looked at me whenever mm-hmm. we were in the room together yeah, right? like it's like oh I get it now okay yeah but I love how everybody comments on that it just it's like all it's over Twitter. insane it's like, oh my gosh it's like, they, it's John and Paul like they're so connected they're like magnets like yeah it's abnormal yeah, no yeah. Shit. yeah George Martin and Jeff Emmerich said that John was the only criticism that Paul would take and like you were just saying that might be because criticism is is different when it comes from somebody who you know loves and respects you. Of course. Yeah. It's that chemistry and it's it's that sense of, you know, I'm not going to be embarrassed if, you know, yeah. my friend is like, what is this? I'm not going to be too embarrassed to show him something else because I know that he still respects me and loves me, right? Oh, okay. Well, I'll just try it again. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And, and that can be, it's hard to come by. It's a rare thing. So, and it's hard to predict who it's going to happen between. Office hours. <laughs> yes, Paul, you'll have to be strict. Some discipline. 
a lot of people with Paul, especially in his solo career, you know, there's so much discussion of how he needed um, John's acerbic wit, right, to kind of <laughs> yeah. cut through his treacly, silly. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, yeah. You're hitting all the buzzwords. <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> so, all that kind of thing. The caustic like, acerbic oh. edge. okay but like where's it like well maybe part of what john maybe the missing element and the essential thing that john provided was not acerbic wit maybe it was love and security Uh, i'm sure that he can take a note from his daughters or you know what i mean like people he trusts Mm -hmm. linda she was a good sounding board too he would take her opinion and I think George Martin, too, I, I thought he had said, like, you have to approach Paul in a certain way. Paul said he, he had said a good that... bedside manner. Yes, the best bedside <laughs> manner, <laughs> which is what you need in a producer, something yeah. like that. Yeah, yeah, well, and then I listened to the, the Egg Pod interview with youth. Mm-hmm. And they, they have also had a long and successful collaborative partnership. And youth said the same thing. He's like, you have to do it right. And that's the bare minimum that we would expect for any great artist. Well, that's the thing. It's like, uh, you know. Or anyone at all. Like, if I'm yeah, right. Sure. Back to someone, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm going to be pretty gentle. Like, it's just rhetorical sense. Like, if you want someone to listen to you, you have to find a way in. And you have to know your audience as well. I mean, maybe Paul is, like, you know. He is. I think he's on the thin end of the bell curve. But that's okay. Well, yeah, but it's also just like, it's it's not being a diva to want someone approach it in a respectful way like you would anybody. Um, and whether they're like above you or below you in terms of like job ranking or whatever, but why wouldn't you? Why would you object to thinking about how you frame something with Paul? And I don't think there's anything terrible about that. <laughs> There's no solo or anything complicated. It's purely just rhythmical and vocal. And if we suddenly add a Lowry organ. Pitching is the word that Michael Gerber used, that George can't pitch. And that when you're in an artistic collaboration mm-hmm. at the literal pinnacle in your field, um, and you're in the writer's room and you're you're making a piece of art that is going to you know go out over the world and capture hearts and minds all over the (laughs) world you have to believe in your own material and you have to fight for it a little bit if you don't summon up enthusiasm for your own work as you're pitching it there are reasons you know legitimate personality or psychological reasons for that but the people who reject it either softly or firmly might be just taking their cue from someone not pitching their idea well Yeah, that's exactly what Paul says in the lunchroom tapes also. It's Mm -hmm. not included in Peter Jackson's film, but um, Paul says exactly that. It's not in the context of him criticizing George, but it can definitely be applied to that situation. And Paul uses himself as an example, right? He doesn't, he's Mm -hmm. not being critical of any of the other guys, but he says, listen, when I bring in a song, if I half sing it to you, then you might like it, you might not like it, you know, whatever. I know if, if it doesn't go over well, that's on me. Mm. I have to go in and I have to sing it like I believe it every single time. When I do that, 100% of the time, I can walk into a pub right now. And if I'm singing 
authentically, like I really mean it, it'll go over and Mm -hmm. everybody will enjoy it. Every one of us has the ability to do this. And so we've got to be able to bring that. Yeah. And sure, John and Paul are probably responsible for George being too self-conscious and uncomfortable to direct them. But it's not reasonable to expect them to just be able to fix that on short (laughs) notice. That, That kind of entrenched family dynamic takes years to unravel. And also when we say George can't lead the session, we're only talking about what we see in episode one because George is just fine with For You Blue, an old brown shoe, just for that, like for whatever reason, he can't direct the Beatles on All Things Must Pass. But here's a thought, maybe maybe George didn't want the Beatles to play on All Things Must Pass. Like maybe he was subconsciously saving it for himself. Sure, well, we already know that the idea of doing a a solo album has crossed his mind and if so why wouldn't he keep the best songs for that right exactly yeah and you know even beyond that I think all things must pass just presented a few unique challenges it didn't really fit the brief of you know stripped down live no overdubs because I I think probably pretty early on George knew that he was going to want more production on it I think it was absolutely one of the songs that he, that he says he doesn't want to do for it, forget back, forget back because he knows it'll turn out shitty because he'll have to compromise. Right. And I think that's what he's talking about. He'll have to compromise his production ideas for the stripped back aesthetic. Same for something, I would bet. And it's not just what we've seen in Get Back that, that supports the idea that he's not quite up to like figuring out all things must pass at Twickenham. All of the, the bootlegs of the 71 takes yeah yeah (laughs) that they did they really start to lose steam and peter jackson mentioned that too he he said you know once they got to like take 25 john and paul just had kind of run out of ideas and they were just kind of along for the ride and looking to george but george didn't really have directions for them and it just wasn't meant to be on that album i still want to see it though so in terms of George seeming to feel more comfortable at times contributing to Paul and John's songs rather than leading them through All Things Must Pass, we're not suggesting he wasn't capable of sharing what he wanted with others or leading people through songs. For example, Bill Elliott, who George produced as part of the band Splinter, said that George was, quote, very hands-on and it had to be perfect. He would keep you there all night just to get one harmony right. He was very, very meticulous when it came to the mm-hmm. finished product the ultimate perfectionist. Uh Now that's something I would normally associate with Paul, like that type of language, meticulous perfectionist. But yeah, uh, back to the quote, Um, he was a good taskmaster. Oh my God, another Paul word. Wow, yeah. (laughs) And he taught me a lot about singing. If it was a difficult harmony, he would sit and work it out at the piano and give everybody their part. And George also produced Wonderwall and Jackie Lomax before Get Back. And George Martin has said that George was especially meticulous. And they became very good producers, every one of them. I mean, George made very good recordings, and John, John as a producer wasn't as good as the others, but he still had great, tremendous invention. John was always looking for something which was impossible, unattainable, and he'll never get it. His way of producing was very much a hit or miss thing. Mm. Um, Whereas Paul and George would be much more meticulous and and uh, George in particular will be um, do the same thing over and over again so many thousands of times they mm. want to go start raving there. Mm. Um, 
but you know, as um, you and Daphne were saying, maybe he had trouble sometimes directing John and Paul on his work because of past dynamics. Right. I think dynamics is the right word because that sort of points to more of an interpersonal problem than it does anything about George because you know, like you said, those are all Paul words, meticulous, perfectionist, taskmaster. (laughs) (laughs) Those are all weaponized against Paul to be like why he's terrible. Yeah. And one thing that I really wanted to bring in is that I, I think that a lot of times, like we talked about before, this is all just a Paul problem. Right. Yeah. So it's, it's not George who, you know, could be any of these things, too. Um, it's just Paul. But what we do get in Graham Thompson's biography of George is um, this quote, which I think is also interesting, um, that in terms of, you know, uh, George contending with with Paul in the studio, he says, quote, it was not a one way street. Harrison could be hard work, stubborn, persnickety and often laborious in the studio. He liked to be meticulously prepared. It was also indecisive when it came to his own arrangements. Throughout the entire history of the Beatles, his own songs consistently needed many more takes than those written by Lennon or McCartney. Mm, yeah. So, I mean, some of those words are, are Thompson's, stubborn, persnickety, and, yeah. and laborious. But he uses the word meticulous again, which is, you know, other people have used for George. And the thing about his his songs needing more takes is just math that's not an opinion you know objective (laughs) so yeah i mean they did over 100 takes and not guilty which didn't even end up on the white album yeah yeah Yeah. take that maxwell silverhammer (laughs) (laughs) and george actually does sound a lot like paul yeah that's ironic it really is to the point where I wish we could have taken a poll and just said, who do you think this is about? <laughs> and, and, and I think that this Thompson approach where he did kind of bring in George's feelings about Paul and then went back and said, well, okay, but you know, George could be hard work too. I mean, those are his words too. Um, that this is potentially one of these more neutral ways of describing this dynamic. You have these two strong personalities, especially if both of them are... <laughs> meticulous and perfectionist they might rub one another the wrong way and it's not a question of going this one wins the asshole stakes you know every time or or something if you're a meticulous task master um that definitely implies that you're going to be opinionated oh yeah so you're going to have a really strong point of view on the song and what you're going to contribute to it and what you think it needs so of course they're going to clash yep So let's talk about the idea that Paul supposedly was indecisive about going on the roof and changed his mind at one point and actively did not want to do it anymore. Yes. There's no consensus on that. Well, the weirdest thing to me is that that's how Peter Jackson is interpreting it. Yeah. So I, so I'd like him to I would like him to release that too so I can render my opinion on whether he's framing that correctly. It, but it's not Michael Lindsay Hogs. No, and he was in that meeting, right? That the... He's there the whole time. Yeah. Oh, yeah, but in that meeting before like it's like the in the footage we see like they had a meeting in this office to talk about it. 
I think Michael Lindsay Hogg was in that meeting. Is there a quote from him after the fact about it? Yeah, he it was in the New Zealand interview. So Ringo is in the middle. George is no. And Paul says, come on, lads, we've got to do something, meaning we can't just sit in a studio for the rest of our lives. We have to find a way to connect again with the audience. But it's and then Paul stops and then no one says anything. And then there's silence. And then John Lennon says, fuck it, let's do it. And that I mean, when John and Paul got together as as a voice, that's what was going to happen. And so then they, they, they walked up the little staircase and into history. We didn't know it was going to be their last concert. What I took away from it was that Paul was a yes. And, and the other guys were waffling. But when John came down on yes, it was a done deal. Because when John, uh-huh. as he said, it, you know, when John and Paul were in lockstep on something, it happened. He, he didn't mm. say then John came down on as a yes. And so then Paul decided, well, OK. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or maybe you I insist. don't know about that anymore. Yeah. <laughs> but he framed it as John coming over to Paul's side. Right. Yeah. Hmm. There was a, a, a cute thing in, in Ian Leslie's piece. He said both Michael Lindsay Hogg and Glenn Johns in the later years both took credit for the rooftop idea. <laughs> <laughs> and he said Paul never did, but he did at one time say, oh, I don't know. That sounds like one of my half-baked ideas, but I, I'm not sure. <laughs> my major take on this this whole roof question is I've seen People suggest that he was like suffering from performance anxiety or um, something else was going on that he didn't want to do it. Um, and I think like it could partly have been performance anxiety. I mean, he brought up himself that they had suffered from that as, as a band um, their first night going on someplace. But the sense I got is that throughout uh, Get Back, Paul is really like trying to compromise he repeatedly mentions that like you know he has to compromise he brings up to john like you know george says he doesn't want to do film and that's silly like george just doesn't want to do hard days night or help especially that conversation made me think that what he didn't want to do um was say out loud and this could be a problem right it's like he didn't he was so afraid of the, the fragility of the thing that he didn't kind of say like I'm going to put my foot down and insist that we have a big payoff because that's not going to get you anywhere. Just being like, I am going to actually be as overbearing and steamrollery as you want to say I am and say like, we need right. to do it. Like, it's just not going to work. <laughs> Confirm all your worst fears. <laughs> yeah. So I feel like he kind of went along with things um, that he didn't want necessarily to do, or he wasn't as kind of firm about things as he necessarily felt. Um, and so when the roof came up, I don't get the sense that he hated the idea entirely. He's thinking like, well, I want like a bigger payoff than this. You know, he's like, this is kind of silly. And Glenn's like, yeah, it is kind of silly. Uh, If you want to do a TV show or something down the line, you can do it. I think that Paul realized that if they did the roof, they were never going to do the TV show or these other things. Like they're like, if the roof happens, that's going to be the payoff and that's it. And yeah. So if it doesn't work, there's no fixing it. Yeah. After the fact. Yeah, they're yeah. going to blow their wad, so to speak, on it. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And then that's it. And on some level, too, I mean, maybe this factors into it, too. He says at one point to John, after this, you're going to be off in your bag, right? <laughs> With Yoko. Oh, yeah. So, so maybe there's this sense, too, that like he doesn't want it to end so soon and he doesn't want it to end in a, like, yeah, with a whimper, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, yeah. Well, and then when he has that line where everyone seems to be okay with the roof and he says, we'll talk about it later, you know, he wants to talk about it privately. I don't get the sense that his like, I'll think about it is like related to wanting to be a pain in Michael Lindsay Hogg's ass or anything like that. It's just sort of like, you know, what does this mean if we do the roof and what does this mean if this goes wrong? And yeah, I always took, always, 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 always taken that to be Paul's discomfort at having the conversation in front of the cameras. I think he wants to speak privately amongst the four Beatles. Well, what I was confused by was the fact that Peter Jackson specifically, and whether this was a little bit of a cheat or not, he absolutely creates the narrative that when, that Paul is anxious about not having a plan. And then when someone suggests the rooftop, Paul like sees a beatific vision like his he smiles like a happy yeah. baby and is like that's it yes finally all my cares mm-hmm. um and peter jackson is is telling us that that is that that was in reaction to the idea of a rooftop concert so then it was weird to me to hear later peter jackson saying that his interpretation of all those conversations about the rooftop is Paul having stage fright about it and not and not wanting to do it out of uh, because of nervousness mm. so I re-watched it because the first time I watched it my interpretation was that he wanted to do it but he wasn't sure that everyone else wanted to so he wanted to kind of stay off that question until it became absolutely necessary to decide and that's why he was like what when Ringo said yeah I'd, I'd do it he was kind of like Nah, that's not what you said five minutes ago but okay <laughs> that's what I thought that reaction was not a oh my god it might actually happen now but apparently that's what Peter Jackson's interpretation was and re-watching it again I was like well okay I I could see how that you know if you interpret everything differently than I always have I can see how that would make sense but to me just knowing what I know about Paul loving to perform I know that he has had stage fright issues before but on the whole he loves to perform he's been wanting to do a show throughout the whole all the footage and apparently he loved the idea to pieces the first time it got brought up to him so my take is still that it was that it was something else that he's reacting to either he doesn't want to alienate the other three or he thinks it's just not going to work Um, mechanically because it, it is a risk yeah well and um, I think he's worried about how good of a performance is it going to be yes and absolutely. I think you can definitely feel the weight of history looming he's like oh god forbid this is our final performance and it yep. sucks yeah and I think that's why he brings up De Montfort Hall because his point is you know the first night we sucked but we had to do that to get the nerves out and whatever and it's fine and right by the second night we were good so mm-hmm. i think he's like i don't want to go up there and pull a demonford hall you know yeah <laughs> yeah it's not the same as having stage fright it's a it's a matter of them being rusty sure i think not wanting to fail yeah, yeah. and just not wanting yeah. to like make a mess out of it especially since he knows this is the one shot sure and it's something they've never done before that nobody's ever done before yeah which on the one hand makes it the perfect thing to do but on the other hand makes it kind of scary yeah can we talk about his horny woof when he when the cops (laughs) 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 
his like um his adrenaline junkie side like <laughs> yeah he wanted to get cuffed it. so badly <laughs> i wish george had agreed to do some of his songs i think i me mine would have been great on the roof yeah um, i loved seeing john like on fire again and yeah. enjoying himself yeah and looking looking strong and yes proud and happy yeah and i loved how at one point the wind like really cooperatively like blew his hair across <laughs> his forehead so that it looked <laughs> just like it did in um in like 66 when he had like that justin bieber <laughs> hair going on oh my God. <laughs> do you know what i'm talking about it was extra long <laughs> yeah i think so i do know like, actually yeah. the wind like came up and went floop so we got that for a second the rest of the time the wind was perfect and it like made his hair like fan majestically like lion's mane it was awesome in his fur coat yeah it was real good so there were a few scenes that had previously been available to us only through audio that peter jackson really brought to life with video and a couple of instances really changed the context for me yeah absolutely the most dramatic one was john announcing yoko's divorce because like in the audio there's no context whatsoever for this announcement so you're kind of left thinking did john just interrupt paul's song to declare his intentions to marry yoko oh yeah but apparently in reality john was explaining almost apologetically why yoko was interrupting him during the take you know he's like <laughs> Sorry about that, but we just got a big announcement because she like grabs him and starts kissing him in the old song. Yes, so it's not apropos of nothing. Yeah, yeah. no, it, it, it totally it, makes, so, it, makes sense. It makes yeah. way more sense. Yeah. If you you don't know that's happening, you're just like, what is he doing? Yeah. <laughs> Why is he? And it, like, it, you know, he didn't just check his phone. It's not like he just got a text <laughs> from the lawyer. So like, what? how do you know you were just singing? How do you know yeah. the, the divorce yeah. came through? But it makes sense now. It's a bit odd to realize that Yoko is sitting next to John at basically every moment, including when he's talking to Paul about them being like lovers <laughs> and singing We're a Couple of Queens and all that stuff. We're um, a couple of queens. Yeah. <laughs> I always sort of pictured them standing in a corner during that exchange. I don't know why, but mm. I just, I didn't expect them to be fully exposed in the center mm. of the room with the camera crew and Yoko and everybody around them. Mm -hmm. I think I also pictured John slightly more jokey. Yeah, but like with a kind of a hard edge, like not mm. really aggressive, mm. but kind of needling Paul a little bit. Mm. Mm. Definitely not like dainty when he said yeah. it, you know? <laughs> yeah, yep. Like he's, yeah. he is absolutely not needling Paul at all. He just looks like he's flirting daintily. Yeah. Pushing his hair out of the way. And yes, he does. Beaming. Uh -huh. Yeah. yeah there, a lot of things seem to have less of an edge. Um, for me, one of them was the bit where Paul is asking John, like, do you have any songs right after yes. this kind of book? And um, yeah, it could be great if you, and John's like, 
someone that we can, I don't know, I can't remember the exact exchange, but they're both looking up at the um, ceiling during this encounter. Yes. And it just seems like, I think in the audio, you could just read that as to a degree. I think that they're putting on like some like voices when they do it. So it doesn't sound like totally serious, but it just seemed a lot more fun. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. like, yeah, like sillier. Yeah. Well, they're, yeah, they're putting on a little play for the for the microphone which you yeah. can you can tell they're doing that in the audio because they're adjusting their volume yeah. to be heard of a thing they're putting on voices or whatever like right. you can tell they're performing yeah uh, i always assumed paul was doing that because he was annoyed and he was doing that to sort of take the edge off his to voice. soften it yep yeah, yeah. Like I pictured Paul as being more annoyed than he mm-hmm. appeared to be in the video. Yeah, me too. Yeah, so just a lot of this just gets so, it just gets softened. It's re- it's really weird, right? It's like their actual body language just softens up the whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's true with the whole Beatles story to be perfectly frank, <laughs> yes. you know? Because every They're- book you read on the Beatles' final years, especially 1969, I mean, you think John Lennon is like the most hard, vicious, mm-hmm. cutting, cutting person. Yeah. And that he and Paul can like barely look at each other and like they can hardly tolerate each other. They have nothing in common. You know, all the shit that we read. Yeah. <laughs> Seeing them interact is different. Well, right. that interview where um, someone asks about the spiky relationship or something that Paul's right, like, right. He's like, it wasn't like that. And this really shows you <laughs> it wasn't like yeah. that. And Poor I, I, Paul. Yeah, it's like people didn't believe him. Like he keeps getting asked, like, what's it like to work with someone who hated you and thought you were yeah. like, pathetic and this kind yeah. of thing. Like, <sighs> I've thought about it like way too much. Has <laughs> spent way too much of my time thinking like for change. Oh my god, what is this? What is it like to live that life? Like, what is it like to read book after book after book written by strangers? Yeah, yeah. about how your soulmate didn't like you. That's insane. That's just insanity. Yeah, that's that's, that's just maddening. How can you live it with is. that? Yeah. Before we go. I do have one more thing I need to get off my chest. And that thing is, why the fuck are there not more (laughs) takes of All Things Must Pass on Get Back? It was so annoying to me because all things, okay, I understand it didn't make it onto the album, whatever, whatever. But it's one of the George Harrison's most important and biggest songs. So I feel it was so disrespectful for them not to show the Beatles rehearsing it over and over 71 times however many <laughs> yeah, times yeah. they did it why would you not want to share that footage yeah I just don't get it there wasn't even like a little you know tagline on the screen they would rehearse all things must pass many times over there but ultimately yeah, yeah. decided not to include it the way it was cut it made it look like they played it once Paul was not even Paul's falling asleep. Yeah, Paul looks half drunk and then it was never spoken of again. Yeah. And that's frustrating too on Paul's behalf. Yeah. Because then it turns into them not respecting George's songs enough. Yeah. I just want to hear them working on it. Yeah. (laughs) I want to hear what they say. I I mean, I have heard it in the Nagra reels, but I want to see it. I want to see 
John getting on the piano or the organ and like being out of tune and George being like, no, don't do, you have to, you know, whatever it is he says. Yeah. Like it's a slow song. And if you hear it a thousand times when you're already half drunk and it's late and it's like one o'clock in the morning or whatever, like I, they're going to run out of gas. <laughs> and I understand why that's maybe not the most exciting segment or whatever, but well, that's part but of the story then do a montage you know what i mean exactly. like you don't yes. just show all those long takes. exactly do you could well, do a little thing like go whole... take one take two take two you could do a little thing on the screen just of to course. show us how many takes they've taken of course yeah. he was 100 percent capable of doing that and I, right. I i honestly think that there's something else going on that made him make that decision because i just i don't get it and i mean the commonwealth song thing dragged I didn't enjoy <laughs> that except for except for John's pitch perfect. Yes, yes. <laughs> that Colin response was so much fun. I laughed much too common time. for me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's our show, everybody. It's been awesome. <laughs> if you haven't seen get back we recommend it <laughs> yeah it's streaming on disney plus and a dvd is coming out tune in next week for the final installment in our three-part series on peter jackson's get back in episode three phoebe daphne and iris will be back and will be joined by talia reynolds for a four-person discussion We'll delve into the ever-fascinating topic of band dynamics. Are the Beatles a team? A workplace? A family? Or D, all of the Who is the best Beatle? And why is it Ringo Starr? Just how insane or not were those get-back deadlines? Tune in to part three to find out. See you next time, people. Yeah, we'll see you there. Bye, everybody.